Is it an account of what actually happened, or is it an imaginative reconstruction of the past? Welcome to the Voices of J. Hill, the podcast of the Journal of the History of International Law. This is an audio celebration of the 25th anniversary of the Journal of the History of International Law, which was founded in 1999 by Ronald St. John MacDonald. For each of J. Hill's 25 volumes, the editorial board chose one article they deem of special significance for the year. Each episode of this podcast is dedicated to one of these articles and their authors. Today, the following voices of Jay Hill are your hosts. Raphael Schäfer, Managing Editor of the Journal of the History of International Law, and Inge van Hulle, Book Review Editor of the Journal of the History of International Law. You are listening to Episode 1, a conversation with Philip Allard about his 1999 inaugural article, International Law and the Idea of History. Philip Allard is Professor Emeritus of International Public Law at Cambridge University and a Fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge. He was a legal advisor in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office from 1960 to 1973, legal advisor to the British military government Berlin from 1965 to 1968, and legal counselor at the British Permanent Representation to the European Communities from 1972 to 1973. He has been a Fellow of Trinity College since 1973, specializing in constitutional law, European Union law and in international law. The main focus of his academic work has been the reconceiving of the international system in terms of a philosophy of social idealism. We are very happy to have you with us today, Professor Allard. Professor Allard, once again very welcome. Perhaps to start you could explain uh, what your article was about. As regards the first article, I'm surprised by two things, the form and the function of it. The form, I'm surprised about the number of references to other writers and articles and books, because this was before Wikipedia, and you had to do all your footnotes yourself, you know, either from books on your shelves or to go to a library to check something. So it was quite an achievement to refer to so many other people. Now, with Wikipedia, there is what somebody called foot and note disease, echoing the cattle disease called foot and mouth disease. James Watson, the behaviorist, called it foot and nose disease. And after Wikipedia, of course, it became a pandemic, and now you get ridiculous articles in American journals that have two lines of text and all the rest is notes. And now with AI, I'm hoping that because those notes are done by research assistants, I hope that footnotes will now contain lots of non-existent articles, which serves the American academics right, I think. On the function of the thing, uh, the function of the article was largely to point out how difficult the concept of history is. It's very controversial what on earth history is. Is it an account of what actually happened, or is it an imaginative reconstruction of the past? In other words, is it some sort of a science, or is it an art? 
And that I deal with in the article to introduce students to that because history is a very controversial and complicated historiography. It's a very difficult and controversial thing. And I have excellent quotation, I think, from Tolstoy, War and Peace, a great historical novel. And very unusually, he had an epilogue to the novel in which he raised this question as what on earth historiography is, what do historians do? One French historian said it's a form of entomology. It's just a science of the human past. The Cambridge view has traditionally been that it is an art form, a reconstruction, imaginative reconstruction. So that was the main function of this article, to introduce people to the complexity of the very idea of history. And so then I go through all the different forms of theory about history itself. So that, I think, is about the nature of the, and purpose of the article. I should say that I wrote a much more sophisticated survey of world history in the 2017 edition of the German Yearbook of International Law called War and Diplomacy, a Giant Step for Mankind. And there I take, a, as I say, a more sophisticated view of international history. Yeah, but so they're, both, they're worth reading together. Thank you so much. It was already hinted at, which is why I was wondering if you maybe could flesh out in a bit more detail what exactly caused you to write the article and how it became the inaugural article of the Journal of the History of International Law. Well, I think it was because of my seminar in Cambridge that I was already teaching the students the complexity of history. And I certainly will have told Donald this, and he will probably have suggested, couldn't you write an article about the problem of the theory of history? Uh, I guess that's what happened. And of course, the first two sessions of the seminar in Cambridge, we would have dealt with exactly the same thing, with tons of materials supporting photographic materials, photocopy materials. So, Professor Ellis, I think your seminar was one of the first, as you mentioned yourself, was really one of the first attempts to delve into this question of history. Um, right. So it was, it was very novel. And today, um, there's a boom of the history of international law, and we've seen yep. the journal flourish in many ways. So if from the perspective of today, you would look back at the article you wrote for the inaugural uh, issue, is there anything that you would change? No. Later, I um, became obsessed by Vettel, because if you're doing the history of international law, he is the key figure in the late 18th century. And I wrote a very early published article of mine was called International Law and International Revolution, which was published. It was originally a lecture. And in that, I started my obsession with Vattel, because what Vattel did was to create a new theory of international law. Um, because up to then, international law had been seen in a sort of humanist tradition. That's to say, it was the law of a, an international society of all human beings. Vattel created a new theory, which was that international law is the law of states, and it is the job of states to pursue their own interest, and if possible, to look to the common good of humanity. Their primary duty is to their own national self interest that coincided with the rise of aggressive nationalism in Germany at the beginning of the 19th century, following from Hegel, Fichte, and others. 
So he spoke to the times, and diplomats and politicians loved what he said, the idea that their self-interest was the greatest of their interests. And so I regarded that as the foundation of modern international law and why modern international law is in the awful state that it is, totally dominated by a few powerful states and very little conscious of the common good of humanity. I would like to seize this opportunity and talk from a broader perspective about the historical approach to international law. And we possibly couldn't have a better person to answer the following question than the author of Jay Hill's inaugural article. We were wondering if you see a change in the discipline of international legal history between the journal's foundation in 1999 and today. Well, I'm rather out of touch, I have to honestly admit. I retired a long time ago, so I can't claim to be reading all the people who are writing. So I wouldn't like to judge what is being done at the moment. But there is no question that um, even I know that there's now this huge sense of the significance of history. I think even governments are aware of it themselves. And I think courts refer to it more often than none. I remember once when Professor Crawford returned from the International Court, I think in the advisory opinion on nuclear weapons, he said to me, we managed to get some of your stuff in. <laughs> and an Egyptian judge on the International Court did refer to my stuff about the relevance of the past and the present nature of international law. But I think everybody now knows that, and with a new interest in colonialism as well, uh, everybody knows that the relevance of colonialism to international law has been very great. You know, to be perfectly honest, in the 19th century, The five great powers did create customary international law and made all the treaties. They were given as a sort of act of succession or inheritance to all the new states. And then there's this terrific new consciousness now that it was essentially a great power thing, international law. Sort of critical legal studies and others have made this point very powerfully. There has to be now a genuinely universal international law not just the great power international law. That's a huge change. This brings us to the end of the first half of today's episode of our podcast, in which we speak with Philip Ellett about his article International Law and the Idea of History, which was published in 1999 as J. Hill's inaugural article in the journal's first volume. You're listening to Voices of J. Hill, the 25th anniversary podcast of the Journal of the History of International Law. Are you curious to learn more about the history of international law? Then come and take a look at our journal at brill.com, where you can find all our issues online. Discover our journal's numerous open access articles, thanks to Brill's various national open access agreements, and stay up to date with our newest publications and latest news by following us on X at jhill underscore rhdi and blue sky at jhill minus rhdi.bsky.social. Welcome back to the Voices of Jay Hill. In the second half of today's episode, we will be talking with our guest, Philip Allard, about more general questions on the overall discipline of international legal history and the development of the last decades. Apart from this uh, development of the, the importance of imperialism that you just mentioned, Uh, this insight that scholars have that imperialism was the driving force behind the development of international law. Are there any other aspects that you see 
you to the scholarship of the history of international law uh, since you wrote your article? And do you see any of this also reflected in the journal's uh, contributions? The mere existence of the journal emphasizes the relevance of history. It's a very fine thing that it has continued to do that. As you know, people read articles that they're interested in, and in your journal, uh, there will always be something that helps people preparing a case, particularly a case in court, from articles in your journal. So the mere existence of your journal is immensely important. Professor Allard, in your opinion, are there any topics that have not been covered so far by the scholarship on the history of international law or remain underexplored? I've recently been enormously impressed by the relevance of Greek and Roman philosophy and history for modern philosophy and history. I've been reading a marvelous book by a Canadian called something like Classicism and Christianity. It's quite extraordinary. Cicero, for example, a very remarkable man, took a sort of vaguely stoic view about one humanity and the law he believed in natural law i don't believe in natural law but he believed in natural law he believed that there was a law capable of applying to the whole of humanity the same for all states and he believed that there was a duty on states his famous book on obligations is duty is a duty on states to serve the common good and some of that he took from greece from Plato and Aristotle and the Stoics. But I now realize, which I didn't really realize before, because that then went through the Renaissance. And as you know, in the Renaissance, modern international law started. And it started because of the discovery or exploitation of the Americas. Because what they discovered, the Europeans, was that very annoyingly, there were lots of very ancient civilizations and cultures all over the world. And so there had to be an international law that covered everybody, not just Europe. And that was the foundation in the Spanish, original Spanish creators of international, modern international law. It was their response to, um, let's just say, Victoria and Sanchez and Las Casas, their response to universalizing European law. So I'm now more conscious, I'm not sure if I've said it in my original article at all clearly, I'm more conscious that there is this continuing tradition that Vatel changed so dramatically at the end of the 18th century in turning it into a state-based system. I'm now very conscious of it being a long tradition from Greece and Rome, the better view. That's so interesting. You just said you don't believe in natural law. Could you maybe tell us a bit more about the reasons why this is so? While Jehil is admittedly not a journal for legal philosophy in the first place, this still seems to be very relevant. Maybe you could also share some thoughts on positivism and how you see international law having developed between these two poles. That's an extremely interesting question. That, um, 19th century positivism obviously got rid of the idea of natural law completely. The modern idea came forward that everything is socially constructed. So law is a social construction, not something derived from natural law. It's just a social construction like everything else. I 
don't accept natural law, although I'm a Catholic. <laughs> if the Church accepts natural law, I don't. They accept Aquinas and natural law. I just don't believe, I think it's too uncertain what it is and too subjective. You tend to put into natural law what you already think and want. It's not a sufficient basis to derive real rules of international law from. So in my view, you have to accept the positivist view that it is socially constructed. But then you are the social instructor of law, as you are in national society. And obviously, even today, it's not very de de international law is not very democratically constructed, but it's more democratic than it used to be. And your national law is not very, very democratically constructed either. Uh, but we understand that we can influence it. And so public opinion, which became in the 18th century an integral part of the making of law, I think now is present in international law. There are so many non-governmental organizations shouting all over the place, even appearing in the UN, that I think there is, you could begin to say that there is some international public opinion, particularly on climate change now, which is having an influence on the making of international law. That's a new and very big development. You just mentioned that uh, you're a Catholic. So we were just wondering, has your being a Catholic inspired your views on the history of international law or current international law? Well, I, I shouldn't have mentioned that because it never has, actually. Um, I remember once at my retirement conference, Philippe Sands, after I'd given my introductory speech, he said, in your speech, you have five, you said five vaguely religious things. Is, is that the nature of your international law? And it never has been. I've never, I mean, like, you can't get rid of Catholic sensibility, can you? But it, it is a coincidence, as far as I'm concerned, that my interest in the common good, which is the whole basis, in my view, the whole purpose of international law, the common good, is also part of Catholic doctrine. But for me, it, that's not at all relevant because I want Islamists to believe it as well. My view of international law, the better view of international law, and Buddhists and everybody, it's no use having a Catholic view. You've got to have a universal view. So I've never thought of it as I write it. I've never for a moment thought, would the Catholic Church approve of what I'm about to write? I'm writing it for all people of all religions or no religion. In international law and also its history, we mainly work with texts, for example, official documents like treaties or resolutions, and of course with scholarly publications. However, even though already forming part of this textual tradition itself through its publication format, the Journal of the History of International Law is very much interested in going beyond the textual tradition, as you can see or rather hear from this podcast. So we would like to conclude today's podcast episode with the following question. If international law and its history was represented by something that forms not part of the texts we usually work with, like a song or a poem, what would it be? By sheer coincidence, I, I don't know any songs, but I do know some poetry, which is, I think, relevant. I want to quote some lines from T.S. Eliot, these four quartets. History may be servitude, history may be freedom. That's a very interesting statement. History may be servitude means history in one sense, i.e. what actually happened does totally dominate us and control us. History may be freedom means history writing 
may free us from the past by reinterpreting and reusing the past in a new way so that's a very clever two lines from Eliot. history may be servitude history may be freedom two senses of the word history they're very like hegel's two senses of the word philosophy hegel divided philosophy into the history of philosophy and internal philosophy history is writing about what other people thought internal philosophy is contributing to philosophy yourself so this is the same binary then the other lines are these we shall not cease from exploring and at the end and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time that is very clever because in doing history and examining history and writing about history that will never stop but when we do it it changes the past and our understanding of the past we know the past for the first time as a result of our exploring history i think that's a very interesting idea as well we shall not cease from exploring and when at the end of our exploring we will know the place for the first time very interesting description of history Thank you so much, Professor Ellis. I think we will never look at T.S. Eliot in the same way now. Uh, so thank you for this contribution. This is where we will round off. We'd like to thank you for sharing your insights on um, the journal's inaugural issue and your views on the history of international law, which has been formative for the discipline. The, the seminar that you organized in Cambridge is now basically the idea of studying history of international law has taken over universities. There are many different places with specialized courses on the history of international law. So you've been truly pathbreaking in that sense. So we'd like to thank you for that as well. The next article uh, that we will be discussing is Yasuaki Onuma's article, When Was the Law of International Society Born? Inquiry of the History of International Law from an Intercivilizational Perspective, which was published in Volume 2 of the journal in 2000. So we look forward to uh, welcoming you in the next podcast. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Discover our journal and its open access anniversary articles online at Braille.com. And stay up to date with our newest publications and latest news by following us on X at jhill underscore rhdi and bluesky at jhill minus rhdi dot bsky dot social.